0: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Good afternoon, good morning, good evening. Wherever you are in the world, I'm Russell Tovey.
0: And I'm Robert Diamant.
1: And this is TalkArt.
0: Welcome to TalkArt.
1: How are you, Rob?
0: Today, Russell Tovey, I am feeling like a self-disruptor.
1: Oh, really?
0: Yes, and I think being a self-disruptor is a really good thing, because it is, actually there's a quote, it's an enviable space of doing what you love and being true to yourself. And it's the description I think fits our guest today perfectly, Mm -hmm. because Our guest today has a kind of very clear mind. I mean, that's the kind of best way to describe her. Yeah,
1: clarity, clarity, clarity.
0: Clarity, clarity, clarity. And she has a real joy for life and a joy for business. And in some ways on paper, she could seem quite terrifying because she's just like a groundbreaking kind of earth-shattering... Powerhouse. Powerhouse, genius business person. And if you look at all the numbers, you know, that she's been involved with in the art world it's just extraordinary like hundreds of millions i mean it's just insane but at the same time i am interested to find out what makes this guest tick you know and the the kind of passions and the love of art that has led her to this extraordinary groundbreaking career so we would like to welcome and actually I must just quickly say every time I think of this guest I always think of the song by Amy Winehouse that goes Amy 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 like that and I love I love that song (laughs) so just remembering Amy Winehouse briefly but I would like to welcome to talk art Amy Amy Capalazzo Capalazzo. hi Amy hi there how are you guys Russell Robert
2: thank you for having me I'm really thrilled (laughs) to be here
0: whereabouts are you in the world
2: I am in New York City in 10021 at my office at Sotheby's.
1: Amazing. Well, before we start, I just want to say that I, we love your voice. As you said in the intro, you're, the clarity of your voice, but you all, also always seem to be smiling, always. That's And very that's sweet a wonderful you.
2: thing. I, I, I'm such a smiling... I'm, um, I was talking to my niece yesterday and we were describing a situation and she's, she and I are very similar characterologically and we were... She was saying that some of her friends say she has toxic positivity. She's always like upbeat and positive. And I was like, yeah, it's like a Capolazzo thing. Like we're super, you know, we have a lot of toxic positivity. Like COVID, okay, let's learn how to make pasta. You know, that sort of thing. So.
1: Is Capolazzo? that's an Italian name, right?
2: Yes, sono italiana. I'm Italian for sure.
1: Do you speak Italian as well?
2: I, you know, I do actually from my parents' Amazing,
1: because I've watched a lot of interviews, and you know, we we're quite starstruck right now. I feel quite starstruck around you, Emma. You have this like (laughs) quality, this really shiny quality. But looking at your interviews, it feels like you, when it comes to business, you really appreciate people who speak more than one language.
2: In fact, I've been said that on the record. Yeah, I think it's very. I think your brain just has a whole different set of networks and neural pathways when you speak a second language and uh, I'm sure that's quite literally true in fact but it also means you might be more nimble or quick on your feet in a tensor tight moment so um, it also means you would maybe you can change directions in your thinking faster or quicker or something like that
1: right and when it comes to business having having that second language has helped you and you've seen it help other people
2: I guess so. Yes, I think, uh, yes, I would say so. I think it's, um, I think it helps me. I think having a second language helps me think about things a little bit differently. Yes. What does that mean? Mm, um, well, like Italian is, a, I speak Italian, I would say, well, and, you know, Spanish, like vaguely conversationally in a very basic sense. So and Spanish and Italian are very related, as you know, but I think that, um, Italian is really good for emotion, as as as, as clichés indicate, right? Uh, the Italian language lends itself well to description, mm-hmm. uh, to sort of flowery language. Uh, you use a lot of that in selling art. So sometimes I actually think of something in Italian and I put it in English and sp- spit it out in English or something like that. So, there's, Italian's good for lots of things. Like, I would say it's a bit uh, in the national character to be slightly hypochondriacal. So Italian has Italian has tremendous amount of adjectives for how specifically you feel ill in whatever capacity. It was good for that too.
1: So you you said that you're at Sotheby's where you are the chairman of Fine Art Division and you've been there since 2016? Yes. And have you been going into Sotheby's daily during all of lockdown? Is it something that you've been allowed to do or able to get into the
2: office? Well, no, there there was certainly a period in the beginning that was very, uh, you know, that was... Very seriously, a lockdown, and nobody was coming in the building except for just a few essential members of security, etc. Mm. Um, I would say that since we did our first studio live sale in June, I've been coming in with some regularity every week, a couple days, or sometimes a little more. Sometimes I mean, if it's a quiet week or I don't have much going on that requires my physical presence, I suppose I, you know, because we were all under a certain limited lockdown, I would stay, you know, work from home or something like that. But mm-hmm. um, I'm in mean, pretty frequently now. It's starting to feel, I mean, I don't know how it is over in London this moment, but it's starting to feel a little bit more hopeful in New York. And the vaccine distribution is starting to feel like it's taking effect. And I think, um, I don't know, I, I think, like, I just feel that spirit of New Yorkers coming alive again. Really, I mean, not that it ever died. It was, always, it was even in dour moments. There were such great moments of New Yorkismo people doing things. But like last night I went to go see, I went with my son to see the David Hammond's body print show that's at the drawing center in Soho. So we went down there and then we walked a little bit through Soho and then we were walking to go have dinner sort of in Noho area, like West Village. And uh, we saw all these people dressed like, you know, the thing about COVID is no one got dressed actually. Like no one really dressed (laughs) up in any sort of way. Right. But I was, saw this person. My son and I were staring. It was magnificent. We saw a person dressed as like a pylon, you know, like a like a, a like an electric neon colored yellow green pylon with like police tape around them and wow. wearing like yellow green. And I thought, then someone else was dressed just like. It was all cosplay. Like people were in their cosplay moment. But I thought to myself, the butterflies are back. Oh. Like everybody, you know, like all the wonderful radiance of New York, all the, you know, supernatural excellence of colour and light are coming back and we're going to have butterflies again. So just to see people all dressed up like that made me feel so great.
0: You know, something that really struck me about you when I've met you in the past at art fairs and places like that is your strong connection to the people that you advise and that you work with. And I know before you were at Sotheby's, before they bought your company, Art Agency, you were advising and working very closely, and I guess you still do now, um, with a number of leading collectors. Mm -hmm. But how does that all work for you? Is that the most important part of your job, would you say, that kind of human relationship, like with a collector, is that the bit you enjoy the most?
2: Well, I like people. I like objects and I like people, and it's important to like them a lot. Both of them. But some days I like objects more than people. And, you know, I can be like 60% loving objects today, 40% people. And then some days I suppose it's the reverse. Like I'm 60% adoring humans and 40%. Yes, the objects are wonderful. But, you know, it's the objects can give you great solace and great, great meditation and rumination and thinking. And there's sort of an unassailable quality to looking at a great object. Like there's just, it's not deniable.
1: Where did that right. Where did that love of great objects come from? Because I'm a collector and, you know, to pop psychoanalyze, I'm always really fascinated of people's assumptions of what the collecting bug is. But where did your love of objects come from?
2: You know, I've tried to dissect this many times uh, and tried to sort of come to my self-actualized place of understanding that. I'm not sure I can, but I can say that Look, I think to be a collector, you have to believe in the material world. So you have to be a little bit of a hardcore materialist. Now, I'm not really interested in like certain kinds of material things. Like I have a passing interest in clothing and fashion and probably like I'm not really interested in cars or things like that, but I really love things that are made. Like I really love art objects. I like certain design objects, too. Like I like furniture, and things. but I really love mysterious things that are made. So I think it's really, so I guess you would say de facto, if I'm a hardcore lover of objects, I must not be a high spiritualist, right? Because spiritualism, spirituality and materialism would be on a certain continuum opposite one another, perhaps. But I am an earthly creature, though I do like culture and tradition and ritual. I'm not a terribly, you know, I'm not like that. I really, I'm not that sort of distracted by the the other dimension of spiritual. I do meditate and I do have like moments of being alone, but I'm, I'm sort of an earthly soul, I suppose. So don't mean to like, you know, I'm I'm, don't mean to rank myself a heathen here or any kind of, you know, (laughs) like lowly amoeba of spirituality. But I, I just, um, I believe this is the best time to ever have lived and there's wonderful things being made and done in the world right now. And I believe we're lucky to be here right now. And, um, you know, this is it. This is what you get. This is life. Yeah, so. Yeah. so
0: what what led you to art? Because I heard that you studied um, at an architecture school originally, and kind of like urban design. And then you yeah. moved You moved to the Pratt Institute and did art. So what was it that, that sort of led you from architecture towards art?
2: So it's actually the reverse. I studied art history at NYU as an undergraduate, and oh, then I studied sorry. architecture design. So okay. that's okay. I mean, I guess, um, you know, as a young person, I knew that I wanted to study. I, st- I loved my art history program. And I, I knew that I wanted to study, uh, something in the, in the visual field, I guess for a moment, I thought I might be a maker of art, you know, a designer. Yeah. Well, if you study architecture, you have some momentary, at least brief aspiration of thinking you're going to make something. Um, but I learned really quickly in a graduate program of architecture, urban design and city planning that I was not that talented a designer and it was, it's a, it was a big, it's what they call in America, a first professional master. So it was a three and a half year course for a second degree. And I learned maybe like in the second or third week that I was not, I was going to be only an average designer, a great presenter of ideas. Oh yeah. but You know, like not, I was probably just, you know, my three dimensional drawing skills were only average at best.
1: Did you have have a crisis about that? Was there a crisis?
2: You know what? I'm very fixated on completion. I'm very, I always do what I say I'm going to do. And I was like, I have to finish this degree. I'm going to like grind through it. So I did. And I I didn't, I mean, I didn't, I think there's parts of the designer architecture world I would have been well suited for. But um, it certainly wasn't the actual maker at the drafting table side of it.
1: Did you grow up with art then? Or did you grow up visiting museums and, you know, design
2: um, I grew up in a hometown in my hometown Buffalo, New York has a superb art museum called the Albright Knox, which Love I use it. any yeah. moment I can to proselytize about its greatness. And in fact I'm headed there tomorrow. And um yeah, it's a superb museum and it gave me a whole kind of belief system of possibility and the future evangelically, yeah. like nothing else could going so to you, the Albright Knox so, as a child.
1: So and do you take yourself off there as a teenager as well? Was it a sort of thing you would just enjoy? as part yes. of like social life
2: yeah i yes i would say that they used to have um you know back then museums weren't quite as inviting to the either they were small little clubs of whoever they cut it but they the albright knox had you know we, we would go with my friends definitely they also had like a really inc- incredible jazz program like a musical program that they would do and that would you know you'd invite it in the museum and then you'd go out to one of the Sort of beautiful outyard, outdoor terrace courtyards, and have jazz there. And Buffalo, New York, has a fabulous music tradition as well with jazz, etc. And uh, if you know the band Spyro Gyro, I used to go hear Spyro Gyra play. They're from Buffalo, New York, oh, and cool. um, so I, you know, there was some combination of of visual arts and music that were fused or synergistically connected in terms of my passionate cultural development. So.
0: Yes. And do you have any memories of the artist that first struck you at that kind of
2: time? Oh, my gosh. Well, I guess I have to say something different than Giacomo Bala, because um, the dynamism of the dog on a leash, which is a very famous painting. I talk about that and people send me pictures of it all, over the, all, of, all the time on the Internet because I talk about it in that right. that movie. But um, there are so many things that I loved growing up in that museum. Like the Albright Knox owns the very famous Gauguin painting, Yellow Christ. Very famous painting, like illustrated, you know, if you Google Gauguin, it's probably the first thing that comes up. And uh, There's so many great objects, like Rauschenberg's Ace, and, um, you know, just incredible Jackson Pollock, de Kooning, Jasper Johns.
1: I saw a Lichtenstein, like the big cutout Lichtenstein. Yeah
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, redhead. Yeah, redhead, yeah. Uh, but I even think of some of the more obscure things that are in that museum, because i know the collection quite well so there's a lot of um you know churches and so what we call what we call at the auction house american paintings which would be sort of 1880 to 1940 or something like that american when the crown of the art world was back in europe and the provincial americans were doing their thing but i like a lot of work from from that period as well um would that be grant
1: wood people like that
2: yeah sure grant wood and um you know the wonderful Georgia O'Keeffe and yeah. just terrific Love. things like that. Georgia O'Keeffe is a she's not even a she's not even a painter you can place in a particular era. Like she's timeless. timeless. She is. Yeah. She is. She is golden. She is stardust. She is everything.
0: She's almost like nature or something. She's so. She's like, essential. I want
2: like, totally, and she yeah. is even alive with us today. I believe. Yes. Is She. Love that. No, Russ, but like... Not oh, so, I was going
1: to say, but I was like, what? Hang on a minute. It's like, it's, like, it's, actually, going on. it's
0: like when I met Nicole Scherzinger from Pussycat Dolls and she said, mm. um, Prince, my friend Prince is no longer with us, but he is with us. That's yeah, the same that's... kind of thing. Like our friend, Georgia <laughs> oh, O'Keeffe.
2: Oh, Georgia O'Keeffe is so... <laughs> uh, nice. like she's Well, she's animated in me every day, so Love she's that. alive and well to me.
1: <laughs> so when you decided that you weren't going to be a maker, how did you then get into like art advising how did how did that route happen
2: well i guess when you realize you're not good at making art then you figure out how to make art happen right so i realized i was better at making art happen than making art
1: do you think like a collector do you think of when you see art i would like that in my collection is that the sort of journey in i mean
2: i i must say i do a bit
1: yeah do you and you collect now and have you consistently collected
2: Well, I collect now. Yeah, of course. But I think on a more modest level than most everybody I work with, for sure. But um, I, yeah, I collect. And I think that there's, um, you know, there's so much about what I do that is calculating or thought, you know, really thought out, like, how am I going to approach this piece of business? Or how am I going to structure this deal? Or how am I going to get these 10 things done in a short span of time today? Something like that. But when I'm when I'm thinking of art, I I have all of the kind of obviously the intellectual and marketplace underpinning to help me make a good decision, I suppose. But I really get to act completely on like physical react, physical force. Like it's like my heart or my head or my gut is telling me I have to do this.
1: Mm. What what do you enjoy that? Who do you collect? And do, are you ever envious of your kind of collectors that you work with, of their collections? Are you like, I really want this, but I think you should get I
2: only, it. I'm only envious. I only get upset if they don't feel like they love it or enjoy it. Right. If they right. love it, it's okay. It's just, as long as that object that is so spectacular is being loved in the world, I'm okay with it.
1: And who do oh. you collect?
2: Well, I don't, I mean, I collect, you know, I can, I collect a lot of things. I do have a, a few Georgia O'Keeffe's. Oh, you do? Small ones, very petite ones. Amazing. they're they're like they're like spiritual objects of devotion in my life those were sort of recent purchases i felt like i needed you know it was, since i was getting old and stuff and i realized i'm probably far more than half dead it was time to find <laughs> time something. to get George o'keefe it was time to like have what i thought i needed to you know continue live out the rest of my life wholly
1: can we just know okay, so- that you're drinking from a studio museum harlem mug at the minute Black and beautiful.
2: Black is beautiful, babe. There you go. This is my beautiful. I love this mug. I got it. Remember when I bought it at the studio shop, I was talking to Thelma and I said, I'm going to get these. And in fact, I bought like five of them. I bought them for everyone in my office. And it's a perfect mug it looks it how do you balance
0: the the kind of combination of like having to place work so that they financially are an investment for a collector say that you work for but also to create collections that have personality because when we met at freeze years ago i was really struck by you brought a collector to us who had fallen in love with a younger artist who i won't mention but um and i was really struck that they were so passionately involved in these these works which were only like 2000 euros or something you know nice. and and you really supported that that purchase because you could see how much the collector cared about those works um so is it important for the collector to sort of you know create this collection that has a personality that reflects them as much as the the interest in financial sort of um security, security. i guess
2: well uh Oh, I would say everything all at once, all the time, right? So if you're going to do something, do it with love, like do it with love and passion. At the same time, you know, if 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 you're going to spend a sum of money that would have a net effect if it didn't work out, well, let's make a good decision rather than a bad one. So, you know, there are people there are people in the world that I've worked with who love more than they're they're easy, free lovers. You know, they give a lot, like they love a hundred things. Okay, well, of the hundred things, we're going to pick 10 or something like this, right? Then there are people I've worked with who like, of a hundred things, they love maybe approximately half of one. You know, they're very, dis- you know, so it's about like accessing the part of the person that um, feels satisfied in the experience and finds a kind of love. And that also means it's not a sort of security and knowing they made a good decision. So... Arguably, that's a form of... Security can be a form of love, I suppose.
1: Yeah. And what what are your favorite type of collectors?
2: Um, What are my favorite type of collectors? I don't really know if I have a favorite type. I mean, sometimes I like them. I mean, I've met collectors who are super erudite and intellectual and know every single thing about every object they have. And then I met people who just haphazardly bought things they loved and weren't really... Didn't have any prescription of what that was how it was all going to come together, and I I could love them the same. So, I'm sort of Jungian on that front. I don't not Freudian Jungian. Like it's sort of I'm open to the collective universe. how All of them are can be interesting or not. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So when so when COVID kicked in and it, it, that, everything sort of ground to a halt, what what were the fears of for the art world? And I know that it kind of it ended up reacting in a way that no one really expected because it kind of went out on crack suddenly I felt but what did it what was it like at the beginning trying to navigate that
2: well I mean we there were there were two challenges one was just the larger marketplace as a whole like was the whole big world going to collapse and then b if we were going to keep the art market alive what would be the logistics we needed to engage in order to do that right because for centuries, the concept of coming in and seeing a work of art has been the litmus test as to whether or not you'll buy it, correct? So if barring that, how could we keep the market transacting, even though the typical mechanics of due diligence and purchase couldn't be employed? Mm-hmm. So, you know, thankfully, we were on the cusp of the digital revolution over here at Sotheby's and had done a lot of investment in the infrastructure here and, you know, all that played to our, our strengths and advantages as we pivoted and went into that. So I was happy about that.
1: Yeah. So you had the, you going into online cause the online sales and online shows and everything really luckily, you know, if this was like 10 years ago, we would have definitely fallen apart. I mean, we would have fallen apart socially as humans because we wouldn't yeah. have had Zooms. We wouldn't have had the FaceTimes.
2: Right. No, I'm, we would have been really, really we, it, it, you're absolutely right. Entirely right.
1: Yeah. So and what what position is the art world in now then? Now it feels like it's more hopeful and, and we are going into a post-COVID or vaccinated world.
2: Yeah, I think things are starting to open up a little bit. I mean, look, not everybody will have survived equally as well. There's yeah. definitely people who have suffered and are not going to come out of this the same either financially or mentally. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm mostly concerned about the mental health of people because I think that's the most important thing. Um, that's what I think of. I've been, since the beginning of COVID, I was like, look, better sick than crazy. Like really important to like, not make yourself anxious, crazy and try to keep your grounding and your bearing and keep a sense of humor about life. And so, um, I think we'll see a slightly, an art world with a slightly different texture. I think we'll see a breakdown of the traditional calendar, the calendar, the marriage to the calendar of like, well, this is the week of Art Basel here, and this is the week of Art Basel there, and this is the week of the auctions. And, you know, this is when the Turner Prize gets... I mean, I think everything's just going to be up for grabs, really. And um, we don't really need that temp, that sort of temporal schedule, right? We can, do, we, we can do something great or interesting when we've gathered the resources to do it rather than have to punt it out on a particular week because we're depending on physical convening. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I've been thinking a lot about... Um... When you get into a very powerful position, you know, after many years of your career, and as you are right now in a very senior position, um, I read that you had supported artists like Forrest Bess's kind of market and, mm-hmm. and the way that you'd help rediscover and highlight uh, artists that maybe had been forgotten or left out of history. How important is that idea of like social change within an organisation like Sotheby's? Because I also heard people like Google currently are doing things like on Google Maps, they're going to be highlighting kind of black run businesses or you know, um, LGBT initiatives and businesses and charities like actually on Google Maps to kind of make it easier to identify how you can support different um, organisations and and people. Um, I was really impressed to hear that about you and Forrest yeah. Bess and so on.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, I, I think, you know, part of being in this, I mean, part of having this position is to, you know, one of the privileges is to bring a little justice to the marketplace of those who deserve their due and didn't get it. And I think, I don't think that's unique to me or to this time. I think, you know, a lot of people in my position over the years have probably had some unsung hero they wanted to champion and and that was the case. And I think in this Moment, we've certainly seen a um, worthy resurgence of certain African-American artists, women, other artists of color, where they've, you know, particularly those, not those that are 26 years old, fresh out of school, you know, but those who have 30, 40 years of work behind them and have worked for years and years without that kind of recognition. So I think, you know, you, you it's very interesting and gratifying and important to have those moments where you're helping a historical correction happen, yes. so is it gratifying to sell a fifty million dollar Rothko? Mm, sure, but <laughs> not. But not. You know, I I know that feeling well. So, but it feels it feels good when you've like brought shined a little light on a particular artist's career. Yeah, you know, Forrest Bess or Barclay Hendricks or, you know. Norman Lewis or Grace Hardigan or anybody who was sort of overlooked by art history and probably deserved a little more light than they got in their day.
1: How do, how do you find artists like as like the art market now obviously sets the trends but when you was advising where was the best route you'd find like really exciting emerging artists for example?
2: Well um, you know there is always the galleries there are also now I think there's also Instagram which plays yeah. a big role and people just putting things up there and sometimes there sometimes it's Instagram and service to a gallery show that I might not get to see because it's in another part of the world or something so I think we're living in the most visually interesting and arguably saturated time so there's so much to see it's really the sorting exercise that's really critical so you know you have to have different data points that you source on and um, what I worry for really is just the works of art that are not quite as mediagenic as the others you know Mm. Think of think of all the artists that would never have had a career if they were coming of age now. Like Robert Ryman mm. would not have would not have been really meaningful if he was depending on Instagram for his following.
1: But they are in the square, automatically. <laughs> they,
2: yeah, they are in the square, um, but they don't. But you know, they don't uh, appearing as postage stamps on an iPhone probably doesn't do them justice at all. You see none no. of the texture, none of the surface. So I can think of many artists where well, they look good in that format and others that just simply do not, so.
1: Yeah.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
1: So when it comes to auctions, do you, do you love the theatricality of the auctions? Because I've been to a few auctions and, and I get like palpitations. And when I bid on things and when I've lost, when that gavel goes down, it's like they're telling me off for not being rich enough. And I, feel like, I feel like, do you, do you love the auctions? Because watching, watching the price of everything and you're on the phone, uh, it feels like you're really in, in like a really nice zone for you. That's like a sweet spot.
2: I mean, it's very comfortable and familiar to me, yeah. I would say. Uh, do I love the auctions? I like everything that leads up to the auction more than I like the auction. Right. But I'm okay in the auction. Like, I never get nervous. I'm very, I'm not ever nervous at the auction.
1: Yeah, you didn't seem it.
2: I'm pretty steady in that moment. And I sort of, the part, in a way, the auction is sort of formula, right? There's like a script. It's going to go a certain way. I'm going to take this bid, this bid, this bid. I, like, I'll look at the, my bid, and i like, chance I have the winning bid on this one because I know this person. I know what they – I know their spirit. I know where their head is right now. So I was like, you know, this person's got one bid at the low and we're done. You know, like I I can – I sort of know what's going to happen before it happens.
1: Is there competition between all you guys up there on the phones?
2: Well, we are usually bidding against each other with our specific clients. So it has that feeling. But I would say the auction is like – it's fun. It's energizing. It's a bit formulaic, but yeah, I, 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 uh, I, I, yes, I like the auction. I like, I like even online bidding myself because I like the gaming aspect. Slightly like, like, yeah, yeah, I've never been like an online gamer or like interested in, you know, like I can, my son plays like FIFA all the time. I like, I love to watch it as but I love the feeling of like, what do you mean I'm being outbid? Like there's a certain mechanic of the gaming club. Like I'm like, yeah hit it real quick, and, like, I, I kind of like that, too, so.
1: Do you, do you ever feel bad for collectors? Because there was that one story of that woman who wanted the NJDECA Akineli Crosby work, and then she yeah. got outbid, and I felt really sad for her. Yeah,
2: <laughs> do, I know. Do, you,
1: do these collectors ever feel, like, call you up after it, a bit like, oh, I'm really sad, or I wish I'd got more, or do you feel guilty that oh, they're yeah. not? I, yeah.
2: You know, a lot of times it's my job to, like, push them and prepare them to go much, much high, like, you know, to prepare them to run the mile. And I often have a conversation with them. Look, the the next morning you wake up and you don't have it. How do you feel? Oh, I feel awful. Okay, well then just, you know, go to the end because if there's, if, if in many cases, it's not the money that, you know, the extra bit of money, whatever it's like, in many cases, that's not even a factor for the clients. It's more just like allowing themselves to have it
1: yeah there was a really beautiful thing you said where you feel there's a responsibility for that moment because this is a memory for them this is probably one of the big, biggest most important things that sort of happened to them in their adult life and yeah. you're there as the conduit to that experience so you feel the responsibility that it all goes to plan
2: yeah and i have to take them to the other side right so it's a bit like a midwife i've got to get, get them to get them over <laughs> the, birth, birth we're giving birth off, to yeah. something here right exactly
0: what was it like, the experience of that documentary, The Price yeah. of Everything? It was an HBO documentary, and um, uh, so many people around the world saw it. And I've read the recent interviews with you where people now say that you're the most recognizable person in the auction business, you know, partly because of the amazing work that you've done over the years at Christie's and now Sotheby's, but, but also because of that, the result of that film. Did, did, you, did you notice an effect? Like, are, are you more recognized than previously?
2: Um, I mean, a little bit. I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, let's just say that I could only play myself in film so that I have a very short film career here. Like, I'm not, <laughs> really, you know, but um, yeah, I mean, people, for, right after it came out, people would sort of come up to me in an airport or say, are you that person? And the price of it, you know, like the occasionally I, that would happen. But I don't really care. I mean, I'm not like I wasn't. And then I had some of my friends, mostly artists who were like, um, oh, you were terrible in that. That was awful. <gasps> And I was like, okay, whatever. So it's just my day job. I don't really... It might even be a 20% dramatization of my day job, but it's just like what I do all day. It's not really... I'm not even sure it's that interesting, actually, but I guess it oh, is. it
1: is. It is. It's fascinating.
2: But um, I have no feeling about I mean, I feel fine about it. Like, when I watched it, I was like, mm, okay, it's about what it is.
1: It felt accurate to you?
2: Yeah. I mean, if felt... there was... Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, it's, it's of course, made to be cinematic. So it has, like, certain cuts and jump cuts that are a bit dramatic. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, But, I mean, it's it's essentially what it is, yeah.
0: I think the response to it is so strong, though, only because it goes into people's homes. And I think the way that people are relating now to television is way more personal than it was even five years ago. So I think maybe that's the way that, you know, when we first came on this chat, we were both a bit starstruck, only because we don't know you. Do you know what I mean? And I think you... It is a very personal experience,
2: that, in, in some ways, I guess. Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, I feel like... Um, I think certain people feel they know me from that film. Right. right. And they don't. I'm like, you don't know me. <laughs> no, Maybe you know me, you know, like, I don't know. You certainly know a part of me. I mean, sort of, you know, I'm not yeah. that... Uh...
1: Do you ever get starstruck, talking about us being starstruck? Is there any artist that you've ever met or you would meet and just be, like, buckle? Um,
2: I'm trying to think of like the last time I actually got a little. Well, I really I did one time. Yeah, years ago, I was at a party in Los Angeles. Actually, I remember exactly when it was. It was just as I was leaving Christie's. So it would have been December 2013.
1: And you've been there the, for 13 years at Christmas. Yes,
2: because yeah. when the announcement came out, I was leaving, I wanted to not be in New York. So I went to Los Angeles and I was, you know, with some friends and I was at it was around a little before Christmas time. And I went to a Christmas party at Annie Philbin's house. It was a very, very dear friend of mine, director of the Hammer Museum. Mm-hmm. So I was at Annie and Cynthia sitting by the pool, very Los Angeles kind of evening, right? We're in like Sunset Plaza, that part of town and yeah. we're by this pool and you could see all of L.A. glimmering out before you in, in walks Joni Mitchell. Oh, wow. I know, right? I was like, I, I don't even know what to say. Like, I have to, like, someone has to help me close my jaw here. I'm so starstruck, because she is a real serious person in my life. Like a very, like Georgia O'Keefe. Like she's that level, original gangster of my life. Like she's for real. I know every word to every song she's ever written. You know everything about Joni Mitchell. So she. um she came in and I was like, I, I I was like stupid. Like I could, I was <laughs> like stuttering, you know, I didn't know what to say. And I think Annie came over, Annie, we, we, we have to talk to, you, know, you have to talk to Joni, you know, you're really gonna, something like this. And uh, well, I mean, you know, it was, it was just incredible. But then I realized, then she started to talk about how uh, she was smoking and like, she always smokes, you know, if, if you follow her films, that's one of the, are you follow like smoking is like a big accessory of hers. And she said, um, I hate that de Kooning shit. What kind of painting is that? You know, she was really, like, outspoken. And, and I was like, okay. You know, she was like, I'm a much better painter than he is. And I was sort of like, girl, go. Like, you know, that's false. But I – and I also thought – I also – there was something on the edge of that that was a little bit like, whoa, that's a little bit, like – off piste of what I was expecting
0: yeah. so I was like let yeah. me just
2: shift let me not be from the art world and just talk about her music and her songs so I can be more on point with like what I really get from Joni
0: yeah. amazing. amazing I
2: know people know that I love her so much that I my friend John Kelly do you know him he's a performance artist yes. in New York here he's great. he does a, one of his he's amazing John Kelly he's a yeah. superb artist he does a performance that's about Joni Mitchell like where he beca- he does like a drag performance of Joni but it's not drag it's, 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 it's homage it's not drag Mm-hmm. But he, but he does dress like Joni, so if if it, you know, upon ob, it, just the untrained eye would see it as drag, but it's not. It's really a homage. And he gave me a matchbook that was signed by Joni Mitchell. I have it right here. to show you guys. Look, his, he came in this envelope, and it's look at it says here, just um, still think this, and it's this. He wrapped it in glitter in an outfit of Joni's. <laughs> Wow. Too bad it's a podcast, right? Can people see this whole thing visually? or is no, it just... no, no, no. You might have to send us a picture oh, yeah.
1: and we can post Hitty. it on Instagram. Yeah, so this,
2: oh, I could send you a picture of this. So this, yeah. and watch this. I haven't unwrapped it in a little while, so it's a special ceremony for all of us. Da, da, da. It's her, it's her right there. Like uh, one of her, um, oh, hold on, my I, glasses Album
1: sleeves, yeah.
2: Yeah, it's one of the album sleeves, and it's um, Turbulent Indigo. That was what she did, uh, is homage to Jaco Pastorius, the jazz musician. Yes. And she, open it up here, and it says... To Amy from Joni. No way. No way. Right here. And look at this here too. He says this here. Um, and this is from jo- this is from John with a little note from him. And this is something about a Pennsylvania Dutch artist because Joni was really into that. And that is the story of these beautiful matches. There you and go. And you
1: keep that in your office with you all the time.
2: Yeah, I do. I do. I'm gonna wrap it back in the little little
0: disco Outfit. glitter. I love I love the sequins. They're like Aqua blue or something. Yeah, around. please send us
1: a picture of that. I think people are desperate to see that. Okay.
0: Well, there's a side to Amy that we didn't know before, so now so I know. T- I, know I have to Mitchell give you her. some. I
2: realize I'm such. I feel like I'm so boring to interview me because everyone no. like heard me talk forever. But I did want to give you something proprietary, and I thought the matchbook from Joni Mitchell and John <laughs> Kelly was. Um, plus, I like to shout out my artist friends who are geniuses. So John Kelly.
0: John, John Kelly, yeah, we should try and meet Kelly, John everyone. Kelly ourselves. Um, can oh. I talk to you about that quickly? Like for meeting artists, um, yeah. I was talking to someone at Christie's the other day, and she said she'd been listening to our podcast, and it gave her an insight into the artists more than she would normally have, because she's kind of you know, lower down at the Christie's and she, she doesn't really get to meet artists that often. Whereas for me, that seems so extraordinary because I work in a gallery, so I work with artists all the time on the primary market. Have you had a lot of connection with artists? And are there any interesting artist stories that you, you have from like people you've met over the years? Mm. Um, or is it quite separate at auction houses? Do you not... No, any I, any I mean,
1: nightmares? Anyone been a complete nightmare?
2: <laughs> look, I probably have more friends who are artists because I kind of grew, You know, I went to school at university here in New York and I came up to the art world and a lot of my friends were artists. So I didn't really come at this. Even though I studied art history, I didn't really come at it from the sort of like, I'm going to like a professional art program and then I'm going to be a professional art person. The pressure of professional yeah. art... I didn't really come at it that way. So I don't know. I guess I have a lot of friends who are artists and I have certain moments in my career where artists have played a really tremendous role. And I I think um I think artists, and I will be expansive for a minute and say visual artists, writers, musicians, like all the all the artists we love and know mm. have played a super important role in my life and have been grounding and anchoring for me in in trying times. And um I feel like I, I, I really think there was a part of me earlier in my career that could have become a gallerist and could have been a dealer and worked with artists. But I felt mm. at that juncture or time in my career, I had two really small babies and I thought I needed that same exact energy it would take to run a stable of artists and work closely with them was exactly the energy I needed to raise my children. It was the same part of my heart and head right. Right. was that. So I needed to like that do commitment. this instead. Because I, you know, to like support someone and nurture them and love them and tell them they're great and do all that, like that's that I needed to actually do that for my children. And I needed to make sure at the end of the day I wasn't too exhausted to do that for my children. So, like, it was sort of by conscious decision, I kind of went in this direction.
0: And what, I heard what? that your, your early experiences of babysitting actually then informed your later <laughs> career, which I loved. The idea of, like, multitasking and stuff. Oh, yeah, oh,
2: totally. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, Oh, you read that Vogue article. That was, like, Dodie's article, right? Is that what it was in Vogue? Yeah, Bogue? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Anyway, I thought that
2: was... I had like, one of those sweet. scrappy childhoods where, like, you ran a paper route and babysat for cash, you know?
0: Yeah. You had to be enterprise. And always yeah. multitasking.
1: Yeah.
2: Definitely.
0: What,
1: what? What was it like? So you said you went L.A. when the Christie's, uh, when the Sotheby's announcement was making and you didn't want to be in New York where Christie's. No, I was, I was at
2: Christie's. I was, I was I was in L.A. when I was leaving Christie's, not that I was right. starting. It. it was just sort of an announcement that I would be leaving Christie's. I don't want to be in the fray at that moment. And that's when I met Joni Mitchell.
1: Right. But what was it like leaving Christie's auction house and going to Sotheby's auction house and their like renowned rivals? Was there? What, and they nobody knew?
2: Well, to be honest with you, I didn't intend that. Right. So when I was leaving Christie's at that dinner party meeting joni mitchell i had no idea i would one day end up at the was like no idea at all. i wasn't leaving i think it's one thing to leave for the competition it's another thing to leave and say i'm going to go do my own thing
0: yeah so that's you a set up your own attenuated. agency
2: yeah yeah that's a little less attenuated yeah. and more you know yeah 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 it wasn't so so i didn't feel that kind of drama i mean it was a drama for me because i was changing my own life you know changing my whole life and doing something entrepreneurial and i had been at chrissy's for 13 years at that time so yeah that a pretty significant portion of my adult professional life and stuff. So
1: do you have a favorite auction uh, memory, like your first auction or one where everything went like perfectly to plan?
2: Life doesn't work that way. It's not like candles and champagne and hearts and unicorns and lingerie and chocolates on the pillow, baby. That's like not how life goes. So like, if you <laughs> think something is like, in fact, if you want it to be that you're perpetually disappointed, right? you're just much better to be sort of a sociological observer of things and sort of take in what comes and I, there's almost never a sale I walk out of where I'm a hundred percent elated. I don't usually have that feeling at all, even when it goes great.
1: What is that then? Why, why is that just because well,
0: it sounds like
2: managing your expectations or something? Well, part of it is expectations. No, it's not like I walked in and expected everything to go through the roof and be a hundred percent. It's not even that it's just sort of like, um, Maybe somebody didn't end up with something that I wish they had or maybe, you know, an object underperformed or something absolutely irrational overperformed. And that's going to cause a problem down the road because then everybody who owns one of those is going to think it's worth 10x. And it was sort of like a – Yeah. it's hard to explain aberrations in the market to people who own something similar and expect that price again. Mm. Um, I don't know. I just – there's something about it that's always a little bit of – you know, there's a big adrenaline leak at the end of an auction. Like you kind of, <clears throat> you know, it sucks a lot of adrenaline out of you. And you're sort of there's just that little moment of deflation, I suppose. But I don't really know what that is. I, re- I haven't really pinpoint pinpointed that feeling. But it's never about that sort of, oh, my God, it was magical. There was like champagne and music was playing. It was. It's never that way for me. Like, I don't I'm not even that romantic a person. So I don't really build that kind of. I don't have those conventional fantasies in mind ever. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Can you speak a bit about, um, in the primary gallery world, sometimes the auction world is really, A, feared, um, B, kind of reviled almost. Like, I often hear people over the years really be quite negative about the auction market and the effect of, like, auctions on the primary market and all on of these factors. younger artists and things yeah, like and that. Yeah, and younger artists and all that stuff. But I've heard you very eloquently sum all of this up, and I would love you to just speak a bit about that as well and the kind of importance well, of the art market
2: too sure well i mean i do market. think people feel like that the you know the the when people are afraid of auctions they're really afraid of the market right it's mm-hmm. it's, the, it's what the market is going to say because the market is going to have their moment of judgment on something mm-hmm. and i always say well being afraid of the market is like being afraid of the weather like it's not really something you can control precisely and the smartest thing to do is to prepare yourself to deal with it and dress accordingly let's say or I think there's just generally an anxiety or fear of the unknown like what will happen, you know, auction has that uncertainty of not really knowing the outcome. Mm. Um, but I think it's important to sort of run toward that energy rather than away from it. Like it's never going away. It's a bit it's a bit like you can't be an ostrich put your head in the sand and say I hate it. I'm never going to deal with it. Like it's just simply not the right. case. But
0: um also like buy the auction, an umbrella
2: is what you said once which I love. Yeah, bring an umbrella, like, right. There you go. If it's going to
0: rain Get an umbrella. Yeah,
2: get an umbrella. And I also feel like, look, we are the the auctions are the mechanism that brings liquidity to the market. Right. And so while everybody, no way all these primary market artists can have a great career without an auction market attached. So, you know, it's like saying, "I I want to have everything be optimal every day all the time. It's like, well, okay, well, that's not really, you know, possible or likely, but there, you can't bring liquidity or raise prices on the primary market until you really have tested and and parsed out the market to know where, where the breakpoints are. So every time a dealer raises an artist's prices, there's usually an auction house to thank.
0: Right. Yeah, there's a
1: yeah. parallel correlation. Do you, do you have internal but conversations about like when, you know, the, the flipping, the, the dangers of flipping or the responsibility for younger artists and seeing that happen – is there like a internal discussions about how to navigate them situations
2: look it's just the market like it doesn't really if there's a market for it if i could sell this you see this pen it's not very dear to me and if i could sell it for about what i paid for it maybe i would if i wanted the money right but like it's 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 just a different kind of decision and so an mm-hmm. artist who's making this or making things you you have to just be mindful. Okay, I would tell every living artist to hold back great examples of their own work and not sell everything.
1: Mm, that's good advice.
2: Feel rich in your own stock, and if you if you can afford to, which you've got to be able to afford to, and um, you know, don't expect expect people will sell. Right. Even even if they say they're going to give it to museums, they sometimes sell. So like, there's no, there's just there's no promises in life. Just make sure you're fortified and cared for you have your own examples and you've sort of managed your success accordingly or your hopeful future success accordingly. Mm -hmm.
0: And actually the idea of sort of protecting yourself and also your expectations. So if you do sell something, you know, it's an object that has a market value of some kind. So you just need to accept that, I guess, which I Begrateful. think some people just don't understand. Right. And yeah. it's just hypocrisy, really. But also I loved this, this kind of sentiment that you had, which I referenced in the introduction, which is about being a sovereign state. Oh, can yeah, you just you give to- that, that bit of advice? Because I think it's so profound and actually really important.
2: You have to be a sovereign nation. Like you have to be, your borders can only be protected or defended by you. Yes. And you can't expect someone to take care of you in lieu of you taking care of yourself. Like someone can take care of you and you're taking care of yourself, but not in lieu of. Exactly. And so that's really important. I tell a lot of, you know, I, I say that to artists. I mean, I say that to women. I say that to nearly anybody who will listen. Like that's really very, very important. And if you're busy feeling like somehow you were shortchanged, it's because you probably weren't, you let your borders be too porous. And I don't mean that emotionally. Like we sh- I don't mean we should be like emotionally guarded and blocked at all times, but we should manage ourselves and our hopes and dreams and aspirations and expectations wisely and intelligently against, you know, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat these two imposters just the same, right? So if you can sort of manage it all, that's really key. But being sovereign is what keep, what keeps you feeling good on your worst days.
1: Right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. How often do you check in with your clients and collectors?
2: I mean pretty often I guess you know yes often
1: and you can spot when something comes up you're like I know exactly who who will want that
2: yeah sometimes I try to pick something that's a very high quality and special but maybe slightly in left field Mm -hmm. because um it's good to expand what you think you think is right it's good to keep the it's good to pivot and change and grow
1: and what, what are you proudest of
2: I don't know if I really allow myself to examine those kind of moments. Um, Very good question. I think, um, well, there's someone i worked with a long time ago who I really kind of pushed them to buy something that was beyond their comprehension at that time. And now, 10 years later, it's the centerpiece of their house. Oh, wow. And I really Um, love that. They didn't, they didn't, they like, like you they, I knew this would be right for them and they, it had worked, it happened, it turned out to be the right object for them, spiritually. Wow.
1: And did I say to you all the time, thanks, Amy? Yeah, I mean,
2: a little bit, yeah. <laughs> like I, 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 don't those, need to, I don't need to hear for the, that. But.
0: For those who can't see though, your actual face just lit up then with this yeah. kind of like radiant yeah. joy. And you obviously do get an immense satisfaction but, from your work. Yeah, right.
2: I do, I do.
1: You love your job?
2: I do, I do. I do.
1: That's amazing. So you must work with clients with all different budgets, but what would you advise for a young collector who wants to get into being a collector and they might not have a massive amount of money, but they have a select amount of money that they want to invest wisely. What advice would you give them?
2: Really, really look a lot before you leap, like buy. Hold on, is it now? Okay. Um, I would say look, you know, do a lot of homework, like really study and learn and really... What you're learning is not so much about the art, but what you like, like who you are.
0: So we we have two quick questions that we ask every guest um, before we finish the episode. So one is if you could do an art heist and take home any artwork from around the world and you could have it safely and we would help you, um, what artwork would you take home?
2: Gosh, like just one? Yes, just Mm -hmm. one. And we Mm -hmm. can
0: bring trucks or cranes or helicopters or anything that's needed. (laughs) or a bag
2: (laughs) wow just one that's so hard um I mean gosh there's I I really am like mystified and stumped I mean I guess I've always loved like I would love a great wonderful amazing a plus Basquiat
1: oh yeah
2: yeah Um... like some I've like some I've sold over the years and um
1: would you be involved in that sale of the most expensive basket ever sold? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah.
1: That was your sale.
2: Yeah, that was our sale here at here at Sotheby's in seventeen. Um, I I guess a great you know I can think of a couple of different baskets I would love to to nab and steal. Um, I can think of I would love to have Felix Gonzalez Torres' Perfect Lovers, the double clock. Yes. Oh I think yeah. that's a
0: masterpiece, we love that piece. Absolutely.
2: masterpiece, masterpiece.
0: We spoke about it yesterday with um, Glenn Ligon. And with yeah, Ronnie it's Horn, a masterpiece. Horn, we
2: spoke about it, yeah. yeah. it's a masterpiece, really. Love it. And that's really, really dear. Um, I collect Glenn Ligon, actually. I have a lot of his things. Oh, you up, do? Up, for years and years. I think he's one of the most important artists ever, really. He's just extraordinary. He is extraordinary. genius and brilliant. I feel the same way. I get to live with him every day. I love him. Lucky personally you. and professionally. But I love his work. His work is what lives in me, really. Yeah. Um, what else would I do the hoist for? The big hoist? Um... Gosh, I can think of so many great paintings. I can't. I can't even. I mean, it's t- to be honest with you, I could just start like rattling and just be crazy. Yeah, rattle, me.
1: rattle. Give us your rattle top five. Rattle, quickly. Yeah.
2: Let well, me I out. mean,
1: let the art out, Amy.
2: Let let it go. Let it open up. <laughs> let it go. Oh, you know, there's um, the Harwood Museum in New Mexico um, has a whole suite of Agnes Martins that she donated to be site specific there. I love that. Okay, that's very, very, very special, I think. Um, you know, there's, there's a quirky painting called scent of apricots that I love. That's magnificent. Hmm. I guess at MoMA, there's so many things. I mean, star starry night would be like, it's sort of like an yeah, obvious thing, God. but it, yes. it is something early in my life that sparked me. And I really loved that very obvious painting made into refrigerator magnets and t-shirts. I loved it. Well, there's a reason for that, though, because they are yeah. extraordinary artworks, aren't they? Because of its greatness, yeah. Yes. Um, oh, my God. I guess there's... Um, Art Institute of Chicago has such great things. Right. Great, superb museum there as well.
1: Is that one of your favourite museums as well?
2: I do love to go... I do, you know... I do have a nice relationship to Chicago, and it's... it's um. I never thought I could live there, or anything, but I just love how committed to the town Chicagoans are, and I love how committed to their institutions they are, and how how wonderful the museums are in Chicago. Like it's a it's a city that punches so above its weight in its in its uh, in its cultural uh, riches. Um, gosh, I mean, I, to be honest with you, it's endless. Like I just start naming things. Yeah, There's, yeah. you know. Well, we love
0: it. I mean, yeah. we can definitely help you with all of those. Yeah. We're going to do yeah, a massive he art heist,
2: heist. And your, and
1: kid, your kids are into art. You said saying earlier that you took your son to the David Hammond show. Is that, are they in, going into the same world as you, do you think?
2: Yeah, uh, he, I don't know. We'll see. i got to go because I have another meeting. But um, they, okay. I hope so. I mean, I hope a little bit, but I don't hope so much. They have to find it on their own. I'm not pushing them.
1: Got and it. the final
0: question we ask every guest is, what is your favourite colour? A colour I can't
2: live without might be red, might be orange
1: good one. Rob loves and orange you're wearing, you're and you're wearing red, wearing red right, red right
0: now, now. I'm wearing red but girls. orange
2: is like, I really love orange.
0: Thank you so much.
1: You're the best, Amy. It's such a joy. Absolute joy talking to you. Take care. Thank you. you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby.
0: Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode with music by Jack Northover.
1: Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts.
0: Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening.
2: only from rustolium